It's my privilege today to introduce to you our special guest speaker. He is originally from Sydney, Australia, but currently resides in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where he oversees one of the largest student ministries in the United States. He is a gifted singer, songwriter, and pastor, and he is married to Laurie Young, my niece. They have two wonderful sons, Thunder and Dodge, and it is my honor to present to you Pastor Sam Kelly. Well, good morning this morning. I do hail from Sydney, Australia, and I always say I feel like I'd be a way, uh, a, a lot cooler if I still had the Australian accent, but I lost it early because I moved to the United States when I was five, and now hail from the great nation of Texas. And it is great to be a Texan. Um, just want to start by saying what a tremendous honor and privilege, privilege it is to even be standing on this stage and communicating to you um, what I feel like God wants to speak to us today. And I know you don't need the reminder, but I'm gonna remind you anyways of how incredible Second Baptist is as a church. If you love your church, would you just make some noise this morning? I love it. Before we start, would you just take a moment to pray with me? God, I, um, I thank you so much for who you are. God, I thank you that we don't have to guess, wonder, or beg for you to show up in this room today, but we can trust and know that you are here. So I simply pray that we would set aside the distractions today and focus on you and what you want to say. God, not what I want to say. Without you, I have nothing. So Lord, I pray that I would get out of the way and that you would get in the way and speak to the hearts of your people. And everybody said, amen. I love sleep. I know the first question that you had as soon as I took the stage is, man, I wonder if that guy loves sleep. And I'm just here to set the record straight. I do. I love sleep. I'm one of those people that I need eight hours minimum of sleep or I cannot function. You can just ask my wife who's here with me today. Um, it's eight hours or nothing for me. For those of you who can operate on five to six hours and you're completely functioning like nothing has happened, it's completely normal, I don't understand you, I envy you, I kind of want to be you, but not really that much because I love sleep too much. I love, I love that recently science has started to back the, the thought and the knowledge that sleep is essential for your health and your well-being because now I get to couch my love for sleep and the fact that I'm just prioritizing my health, you know what I mean? Just wanna be a healthy individual. Uh, someone recently told me, I'm not sure if this is entirely true, but it sounds pretty awesome, that before the light bulb was invented, that people would sleep for 10 to 12 hours a day. I heard that and I was like, I was born at the wrong time. I wanna go back then, I'm like, babe, take the light bulbs out of the house. I'm gonna sleep for 12 hours tonight. <laughs> Because I love sleep so much, I dislike alarms a lot. I'm known as somewhat of a chronic snoozer. Again, you may view that as lazy. I view it as prioritizing my health. I just want to get as healthy as I can before I start my day. And a couple of months ago, an alarm went off at an extremely early hour of the morning. I wake up, it's dark outside, I'm in a daze, and I'm like, that's definitely not my alarm because I would have never have set an alarm that early. And I, in a daze, I make my way over to my phone and it's four in the morning. And I'm like, what is going on? I look down at my phone and it's, it's not an alarm, it's actually an Amber Alert. Now, I'm sure most of us are familiar with what an Amber Alert is, but for those of us that aren't, 
It's an alert that gets sent out to phones and some other places that alerts a community to let them know that there is a missing child or an abducted child, usually 17 years or younger, and it gives a description and says if you hear or see anything to contact a certain number. Now, I wish that as a pastor I could tell you that I saw this Amber Alert at four in the morning and I got my Bible open and I just took 30 minutes to 45 minutes to pray, but I didn't. I was just kind of frustrated that this woke me up. I'm like, we couldn't have waited a little bit longer to send this out, and so I turned this off I put my phone away and I go back to bed and I feel the Holy Spirit kind of nudge me in that moment and say, really, Sam, no emotion at all? And I'm like, Lord, if you want emotion, maybe you can talk to me at nine or 10 in the morning when I can put a sentence together. No, I I started thinking, yeah, I guess no emotion. I mean, it's not my kid. Now I've got two boys named Thunder and Dodge and those are their real names and they live up to their names. And just the thought of something happening to one of my boys stirs up in a tremendous amount of emotion within me. In fact, if something were to happen to either of my boys, I would take out every single penny in my bank account. I would take a leave of absence from work. Sleep would become a very low priority for me. And I would spend day and night finding my boys or I would die trying. For those of you who have kids, you would do the exact same thing. And as I'm thinking of this, it's like the punchline of the spiritual conversation comes and I feel like the Holy Spirit says to me, hey Sam, I have a tremendous amount of emotion towards missing kids from my family. In fact, I have a tremendous amount of emotion towards kids in my family who are hurting, lost, broken, and confused. And if in the spiritual formation process, your heart was forming like it ought to, to be more like mine, you would carry that same emotion as well. Talk about an uppercut to the chin from God at four in the morning. I didn't sleep much the rest of that morning. This morning, I want to talk to us on the topic of the next generation, and I'm passionate about the next generation, not only because I'm a student pastor, but because I'm a Christ follower. And I would argue that if you call yourself a Christ follower in the room today, you too should be very passionate about the next generation. If you look at the landscape of our culture and our day today, it doesn't take too hard a glance to see that character is crumbling in our world. I've noticed that as character starts to crumble, families start to crumble. As families start to crumble, communities start to crumble. And as communities start to crumble, the whole world starts to crumble. And as that takes place, who does that affect the most? Who is there left to pick up the pieces of this shattered and broken world? Well, it's the next generation, it's the kids. And I don't want to be that pastor that tries to oversell how grim things look for the next generation in order to move the hearts uh, emotionally of people. But I just feel like right now, I don't even have to try anymore. It's like, just look at the world and what is taking place. That young people are being raised in a day and an age where living life contrary to God's word is not just tolerated, it's actually celebrated. It's madness. You look look at the statistics of anxiety and depression and even suicide in this next generation, and it is skyrocketing at paces that statisticians can no longer keep up with. You pair that with the fact that 94% of individuals 
have viewed pornography by the age of 14. And if I could just encourage parents of teenagers in the room to please think twice before you hand a cell phone, essentially the world, into your son or daughter's hands. Please do your due diligence to set up the appropriate boundaries before handing them something of that nature. Another statistic, the amount of drug use, the amount of increase in drug use amongst eighth graders from 2016 to 2020 has risen 61%. And do you know how many teenagers claim to consistently read the Bible? 3%. Young people are being raised in a day and an age where they're told there is no absolute truth, that they are defined by their feelings, their desires, and their emotion, and it is absolute chaos. It's chaos. But, but I'm aware this morning that reading off some statistics and some numbers just kind of feels like that. <laughs> feels like numbers and statistics, it's not very personal. So an effort to make this feel a little bit more personal for us this morning. Um, last summer at our summer camp back in Dallas, that would be similar to what you guys host every summer at Beach Retreat, which by the way is absolutely phenomenal. But at our camp last summer, we had a communicator stand on stage and talk about his battle with anxiety. And this is a group of middle schoolers, sixth, seventh and eighth graders in the room. And he talks about the gospel and the fact that Jesus is with you in the midst of your struggle, that you're not defined by your feelings. It was a powerful message. And at the end of the message, out of respect of privacy for the moment, he asked every student to bow their heads and close their eyes and said, I'm going to count to three. And if you struggle with anxiety, depression, or even thoughts of suicide, I'm going to ask you on the count of three just to shoot up your hand and stick it right back down. And we want to pray for you. I'm standing at the back of the room and he counts to three and I see three quarters, if not more of the room raise their hand and put it back down. These are 12, 13 and 14 year olds. They should be thinking about what sport they're going to play next year, not whether their life is valuable or not. That night we had the chance to pray over many young people to remind them that there is hope for them. That even though they struggle with these things, that God loves them and cares about them and has a tremendous plan for their life. And there was a mom who came out to serve at that session of camp. She bounced from girl cabin to girl cabin, praying with young girls, reminding them again that there's a plan and a purpose for their life. I ran into this mom the next morning and she said, Sam, last night was somehow the most exhausting and yet rewarding night of my life. I cannot believe how many young people have these struggles, but I am so thankful for the message of Jesus and the church to remind young people that there is hope for them. I think one of the difficulties in coming to church sometimes is we can put on some masks and sit next to people and pretend like everything's okay, but we don't know on the inside that people are really struggling. So a couple of weeks ago in our student ministry, we handed out some cards and at the end of a message, I said, I want you to take a moment to fill out this card anonymously and write some things that you're struggling with that maybe you've never told anybody. And our team is gonna pray for these and I think the first step to finding some freedom with your struggles is to, to start get it out, to bring it out into the light. So I wanna read some of those cards 
to us this morning. And keep in mind, these are students within the four walls of the church, the vast majority of which would have a personal relationship with Jesus. One person wrote, I struggle and have a lot of breakdowns and panic attacks because two of my brothers died. I have guilt from when my brother tried to kill himself in front of me and I carry a lot of trauma from that day. I struggle with anxiety and depression and self-harm. I struggle with finding God. I've tried over and over and it's just so hard for me. I struggle with depression. I've stepped into a relationship with Jesus, but I just need more help. My mom tried to kill herself in front of me about two years ago and it, I just can't stop thinking about it. I drink my mom's alcohol and smoke her cigarettes to take my mind off things. My dad is dying and I don't know what to do. I struggle with insecurity, alcohol, and sex. I'm struggling with an eating disorder and seeing myself the way God sees me. And I feel as though I am an empty and hopeless soul. I hate myself and wish I could change, but I don't know if it's possible. My friends, there is an alarm sounding. And I am afraid that oftentimes there are a lot of us who are content to go right back to sleep and not see that there is a problem that we can be a part of the solution. Maybe you hear cards like this and stories of young people that are dealing with these things and you feel like I felt at times just overwhelmed. What do we do? How do we begin to help? Problems seem so large. If you take home one thing from today, let it be this. You may not be able to do everything, but you can do something. So please do something. You may not be able to fix the entire problem, but I can assure you that you can do something. So I beg of you, please do something. What would Houston look like if every single man and every single woman under the sound of my voice got a hold of that thought and said, man, I may not be able to fix the entire problem, but I certainly can do something. So I will do something. I'd love for you to say that with me today. I may not be able to do everything, but I can do something. One more time. I may not be able to do everything, but I can do something. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the story of a man who does something. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. I'm sure we're all very well aware of this story. But this story is actually set up because a religious law, an expert of the law, approaches Jesus and and asks a question, but really he's just trying to trap Jesus, which many religious figures back in the day did. It never really worked out for many of them because you can't really trap God. <laughs> so he approaches him and he says, um, hey teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus points the man to the law. What does the law say? He says, uh, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, yeah, go do that. The guy's like, uh trying to figure out a way to get out of this. And so he, he poses the question, well, who is my neighbor? Sounds like a lawyer. Define neighbor. And Jesus picks up and tells this story starting in verse 30 of Luke chapter 10. It says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now this was a 17-mile journey that was known to be dangerous. 
and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. That phrase right there will preach by itself because you and I are surrounded by half dead individuals alive on the outside, but dead on the inside to God's plan and purpose for their life. And we are there for a reason to point them to Jesus, to point them to hope. But that's not the point of today's sermon. So I'll continue. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. Now, again, we're all familiar with this story. But, but I like to embed myself in this story like it's the first time I read it. I picture this man lying on the side of the road, half dead, and maybe just maybe out of the corner of this man's eye, he sees a priest-like figure approaching. And he thinks to himself, help is here. It's a bit like being stranded on an island and seeing a Coast Guard, Coast Guard helicopter fly over. You're like, yes, finally. But we know that help doesn't come, does it? It says, when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Another translation says he's walking down the same side of the street as this man and angles across the street and continues on with his day. Does he have some duties at the temple that he needs to take care of? Is he worried about being defiled because he thinks this man is dead? We don't know. Jesus just said he kept on walking. So too a Levite, which was an upstanding figure, a good man who also had religious duties, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. Now you and I hear the word Samaritan and think, I want to be a Samaritan, someone who helps people. But in this context, Samaritans were not viewed in a good light. So most likely the individual hearing Jesus tell this story is thinking, oh, it's about to get way worse now. He's about to get robbed twice. Says he traveled and saw where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, or had compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which would be enough money to take care of the inn and some food for a couple of weeks, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. And Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, listen, he won't even say the word Samaritan, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This man approaches Jesus and has two questions, the second of which is, who is my neighbor? Jesus flips the script on this man and said, you're, you're asking the wrong question. You shouldn't be asking who is your neighbor. You should be asking who can you be a neighbor to? Who can you do something for? Who is hurting in your community? Who is hurting around you? Go and be a neighbor to them. And I would like to submit to us this morning, we have a lot of younger neighbors who are desperately hurting, who are in need of hope, who are in need of the gospel. And I pray that we are not content to just see the need and cross the street and continue on with our day. It begs the question, why don't we help? I think it's because help is usually inconvenient, requires time, and it requires resources. I don't think the Good Samaritan had on his to-do list that day to help a dying man. <laughs> I'm sure he had some plans for that day, 
But he saw the man in his need and said, man, I may not be able to fix like the entire problem here, but I certainly can do something for this guy. So I will be inconvenienced. I will spend time with him and I will use resources to make sure that he is brought back to health. It's as if he said, I may not be able to do everything, but I can do something. And he certainly did something. There's a rather tragic story of a woman by the name of Kitty Genovese who lived in New York City in, this, uh, in the 1900s. And if my memory serves me correctly, in 1964, Kitty was murdered outside of her apartment building. And it was said that 38 bystanders passively watched as she was murdered. Not one of them stepped in to help. Not one of them called the police. People heard this story and they're outraged. How is this possible? How could, how could people, how could one person, let alone 38, see something of such atrocity takes place and not do anything about it? Psychologists name it something called the bystander effect. They argue that the larger a crowd is, the less likely anyone is to take personal responsibility in a state of emergency. And oh, my friends, if the bystander effect hasn't crept into the church, I don't know what has. It's easy to walk into an incredible church like Second and look at all the people and all the things that God is doing. Say, man, I'm sure there's a lot of efforts going to help the next generation. But can I remind us this morning that Christianity is not meant to be a spectator sport. You are not called to step into a church on a Sunday morning, fill a seat and walk out and go on like with life as usual. You are called to carry each other's burdens, to build and be a part of building the one thing that Jesus said is the hope of the world and the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church because the church is the hope of the world, because it carries the most important message that has ever been told. And that is the story of Jesus and what he did for humanity. Earlier in Luke 10, Jesus is sending out 72 disciples to go to distant towns and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is here. And he says a phrase that I believe still rings true to this day. He says, go out and understand that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So pray for more workers. The harvest is plentiful when it comes to the next generation. Unfortunately, many times the workers are few. So may we be men and women who pray for more workers. You know who prays for more workers? Workers. Because <laughs> they're in the thick of it and they see it and they see the need. And a great litmus test to see how much you care for the next generation is when's the last time you prayed for more workers to help and be a part of what God is doing in and through the next generation may not be able to do everything, but you can do something. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, Sam, I am ready to do my something. Just tell me where my priority should land. I'm so glad you asked, even though you didn't and I asked for you. I believe Paul gives us the answer to that question in Galatians chapter six, verse nine. 
He says this, he says, let us not become weary in doing good, as if to say doing the right thing sometimes can be tiring. <laughs> can you relate to that? Like, man, I'm just, sometimes it can be tiring just choosing to do the right thing. Paul says, I feel you, but don't, don't grow weary in that. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, and do we have opportunity when it comes to the next generation? Let us do good to who? All people. Especially, here's the priority, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Do good to all people, especially for those within the church. There are a lot of great initiatives that take place outside of the four walls of the church that are helping the next generation, of which I think we need more of. But Paul clearly says our priority should always be as Christ followers to build the church, to focus on the church, to make sure that we're a part of building the one thing again that Jesus said. The gates of hell can't stand against. Contrary to popular belief, Jesus is not up in heaven directing the angelic choir. They sing just fantastically. He's not making sure that planets continue to rotate on their proper axis. They're performing greatly. His 24-7 full-time focus is on building his church. And do you know how he does it? By tapping on the hearts of individuals like you and like me. And he says, hey, um, Part of the reason I've redeemed you, part of the reason I've given you the gifts, the talents, the abilities that I've given you is so you can build my church. I've got a critical role for you to play. Would you come and build my church? The alarm is sounding. Please don't go back to sleep. Do something. There's an amazing story of a man by the name of Justo Gallego. He's a Spanish man who was born, again, in the early 1900s. And um, around the age of 30, he contracted tuberculosis. Back then, that was a death sentence. And he prayed a prayer when he contracted the disease. He said, God, if you bring me through this, if I recover from this, I'm going to build you a church with my bare hands. A couple years later, he did recover from tuberculosis. And without any previous knowledge of building or architecture, he started to build a cathedral, brick by brick. From 1936, all the way up for 60 years, six days a week from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., Justo Gallego built this cathedral. The team actually has a photo of it, and Justo's standing on top of this cathedral. And I'm reading the story of this man who for 60 years built a church with his bare hands and I am taken aback by this man's faith. He said, this is to show what God has done in my life, that he's brought me through this disease and healed me and I wanna showcase to the world what he's done in my life. And then I continued to read the story and it said that this cathedral has become a tourist attraction. And I thought, man, isn't that, familiar to the church these days. Sometimes it feels like church is a tourist attraction for people. They come in and fill a seat and see what the church can do for them and then they leave. And then at the end of the article it said, it's known as the One Man Cathedral. And I read that line and I immediately thought to myself, oh please, 
Do not let any other church be known as the one-man church, but let it be known as churches across the world who are filled with a bunch of broken people who have been healed of this disease called sin, and they want to showcase to the world what God has done in and through their lives by building and being a part of the church and building the one thing that Jesus said is the hope of the world. The entity primarily responsible for carrying the greatest message that's ever been told, the message of Jesus. It's why I love so much driving up to this campus this morning and seeing the children's facility that's been built or is being built. Second is a church that cares tremendously about the next generation. It's why I love seeing what you guys do at Beach Retreat every single summer. I saw the video and I was so inspired. And I just want to challenge and encourage every single person in this room to make sure that you know that there's an alarm that's sounding and you've got a part to play. You can do something, may not be able to do everything, but you can do something. So don't cross the street. Will it be inconvenient? Yeah. Will it require more of your time and more of your resources? Yes. Getting involved is, co is costly, but not getting involved is far more costly.